Please look with me at Romans chapter 8. I'm just going to read the first four verses, though you'll see uh, the text there. I'm sorry, the uh, verses 5 through 11, although I'm going to be referring to the first four verses uh, again. So join me as we read again. This is uh, the fourth look that we're making at uh, this chapter, and uh, there's good reason for it. It's uh, rich, it's powerful, it's, it's a portion of Scripture that we really need to understand. So that's why we're drilling down into it. So read with me, beginning at verse 5, and then reading through verse 11. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the, mind on the, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if, in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. And anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, um, again, we thank you that you've given us your word. You speak and you keep, you preserve what you speak for our well-being. And and we confess again, this is what we have before us, but we need more. We need this spirit of whom Paul speaks here. We need for you, Jesus, by your spirit to come to us and walk among us, knowing us, And we need you to take this, your word, and apply it personally and specifically to each of our lives. So come, Lord Jesus, and do that work by your spirit, we pray in your name. Amen. Please be seated. We're uh, going to take a couple of more looks at these verses in Romans chapter 8. If you feel like that's a lot, you should get Martin Lloyd-Jones series of expositions on Romans chapter 8. I think there are about 30 of them. I I don't know. I mean, he got buried in this thing and couldn't seem to extricate himself from it. Uh, We're not going to take that long, but I do want to take a couple of more looks at this before we we move on to verses, really to verses uh, 9, 10, 11, 12, and and following. And and as we look again for for the fourth time at these verses, let me, let me give you a couple of images. I want you to keep these images in your head as we make our way through these verses, as we look at some of the details again this morning. And here's the first one. Um, it's, it's my oldest daughter's birthday, the day of her birth. That's the first image. She is, uh, I think many of you know, is expecting our first um, grandchild. Um, so there is another birthday that is out there in the future. Very exciting prospect. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking back to her birthday, and I'll try to make this. I could occupy the next 40 minutes just telling this story because it's so poignant and tender. But here's the bottom line. When Dr. Leonard Eppard, having delivered my oldest daughter and having toweled her off, cleaned her up, 
handed her to me so that I could hold her in my arms, my newborn daughter. I looked in her face, and the most transcendent, inexplicable, mysterious, glorious, wonderful, and sublime thing probably across the whole of my life except for two other events, when I met Jesus and when I met my wife, this most incredible thing happened. I looked into, the, looked into this face and I saw the face of my sister. I saw the face of my sister. I saw the family likeness. My oldest daughter is, is going to have a baby. There are all of these tributaries and rivers that flow into who this little child will be. And I can't wait, and neither can Barb, to look into that face and see the evidences of Allens and Moores and Mullins and Malones. And that's just on our side of things. There's also the Webster side of things. I, I, I hope that it's the Malone thing that dominates but the Webster thing will feed into that as well. Family likeness. And then here's the second image I want you to have in mind as we make our way through this, uh, this passage again. It's this story that's told of Michelangelo about his later years and the last sculpturing, sculpting work that he did. I don't know if you know this, maybe you know this about him, but that his last works, his final works of sculpture were incomplete They were human images, human beings emerging from the rock, from the stone. I, I, I understand, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago, a few months ago, some, sometime in the recent five years, that Michelangelo came to believe that only God could create the perfect sculpture. And so all of his work was incomplete, unfinished. That's you. The sculptor is sculpting things of extraordinary and exquisite beauty. You are, here's the word, you are emerging. You're emerging. So keep those two images in your minds, if you can, as we make our way across these verses. We're taking a look at these again because these verses, verses 1 through 8, 9, 10, 11, they're transitional verses. They're moving us from the hopelessness of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from this body of death? They're moving us from this condition of hopelessness and helplessness into this condition of hopefulness. Think of some of the later verses. Think of the extraordinary contrast there is later in chapter 8, to which we referred last week, as Paul uses all of this language of family, of children, sons and daughters, heirs with our elder brother Jesus, of the inheritance that comes to us from the Father. The hopefulness that there is. You have received the spirit of adoption as sons and of daughters by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who gave up his son, how will he not also with him freely, graciously give us all things? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You see how this thing moves from chapter 7, despair, despondency, wretched man that I am, to this place, really this place of exhilarating hopefulness. And these are the verses that move us from one place to the other. 
These are the verses, if you will, that transition us to that place of real and thorough hopefulness. And and here's what we've seen again, looking at it from 30,000 feet and moving down into some of the details of the passage. We saw weeks ago that Jesus has delivered us, has delivered us from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. And the day is coming when he will deliver us from the very presence of sin. The penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. The day is coming when I will be who I long to be and the one whom I'm supposed to be. The day is coming. It's out there in the future. It's later in chapter 8. That's what we saw weeks ago. And then, and then we've seen that Jesus, by his grace, by the mighty working of the Spirit, has given us a new standing. There's no condemnation anymore. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No threat of judgment. No fear. No fear. If you're a Christian this morning, let me say this to you. You have nothing to be afraid of. No thing can harm you. Nothing. There is no threat of condemnation. And not only are you in new standing, new relationship to God as a child, secure and safe, but you're in a new environment. You've been transferred from this old environment, an environment of bondage and death. Listen to the language, the language that we just read in these verses. Listen to the contrast that there is between death and life. You live in the Spirit, verse 5. The Spirit, having the mind set on the Spirit, leads to life and peace, verse 6. The Spirit is life, verse 10. The Spirit will give life to your mortal bodies. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, all of this language of life is contrasted with death. Freedom is contrasted with bondage. Read through 5 and 6. Skip over 7 if it's too depressing to you. Move on to 8. And notice all of this. You see, something has happened, and that's what we're saying. This phrase, in the Spirit, to be in the Spirit, means that I've been transferred from one environment into a new environment. So I have a new standing, I'm in a new environment, and then the last thing, this thing that we really camped on last week, the Christian is someone who has a new orientation, the mind set on the Spirit. And what we begin to see as we contemplate that and think about it is that everything changes. Everything is different. There is a new lens through which I see things. There is a new lens through which things that I'm looking at come to me. And I just gave a couple of examples of that. Alexander the Great isn't a story in and unto himself. The expansion of the of the Macedonian and and Greek empire is not a story unto itself. The rise of Rome and, and Octavius becoming Augustus and the Pax Romana extending to the whole of that empire. These aren't stories in and of, of themselves. There is a king seated on a throne. He is ruling and reigning. He is ordering and guiding and directing all things so that the Son may make His appearing at the perfect time, the Kairos moment, so that He may live and die and be raised again, so that the Gospel may be sent out to the whole world. 
Everything begins to look different. And even my difficulties, my troubles, my heartaches begin to look different. Because I am in Christ and I have an entirely new orientation, an entirely new north star. The mind set on the spirit, as we said last week, is the mind set on Christ. Colossians 3.1. Set your minds on things above where Christ is. Same language that Paul uses here. Set your minds on Christ. Things above where Christ is. So I have a completely new orientation. Now, what we looked at last week was in response to the first of several questions that we want to ask this passage. Uh, What we asked the passage last week and asked Paul last week is, to whom are you speaking? Well, he's speaking to family. Again, that's the language of family all throughout this passage. He's speaking to family. Those who have been adopted into this family, those who have been transferred, those who have this new environment, this new North Star, this new orientation, speaking to family. You are the family of God. You are the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. You are heirs with him. Now, here's the second question. Okay, Paul, we understand those to whom you are speaking. Now, what do you expect? What do you expect? And there are two answers to that question. What is your expectation, Paul? Two words. Change and struggle. Change and struggle. Two words that describe, define, give content to form and shape the expectation that the apostle has change consider this first you have to back up to verses three and four but let me read them for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh In order, this is the important thing. This is the transitional clause, the transitional phrase. In order that, why did he do all of this other stuff? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What's the expectation? Let me answer the question and then we'll get into the details. The expectation is that those who have been transferred from this one place to this other place, who have this new north star, who walk now not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, in the spirit, those who walk according to the spirit will find that the righteous requirement of the law is being fulfilled in them. Okay? That's the expectation that the righteous requirement of the law will be fulfilled in them. Well, let's ask some questions. You'll notice the sermon title is a couple of additional questions, maybe a bunch of additional questions. Let's ask some additional questions of this passage. What is it that the law couldn't do? Now think about it. You have to go back to chapter 7 in order to answer that question. What is it that the law couldn't do? Well, it couldn't save me. It couldn't free me. Right? 
He couldn't extricate me. Couldn't free me from condemnation. Couldn't free me from bondage. All the law can do while telling me what I should do and what I shouldn't do, all the law can do is condemn me because of my violation of the law. The law can make its demands. Again, it can tell me what I should do. It can tell me what I shouldn't do. But it's powerless to help me. You see, it's po- why is it powerless to help me? Because of my flesh. You see, that's the problem. That's the point. You remember Chesterton? Wait, now this is two years ago, okay? For those of you who've just uh, come more recently, uh, we've been in this book for two years. Two years officially today. With some departures for some other delightful things, but we've been in this book for two years. And way back at the beginning, I mentioned the Chesterton response to the editorial that appeared in the Times of London, which had the masthead, the title, What is Wrong with the World? And Chesterton wrote back and said what? We can say it together, can't we? I am what is wrong with the world. I am what is wrong with the world. Why is the law powerless to help me? Why is it powerless to save me? Not because there's anything defective or wrong with the law, but because there is everything that is wrong and defective with me in my flesh. Remember what Paul said. That's why I had, it, had us read it again. What is native to the flesh? What is the nature of the flesh? The flesh does not submit to the law of God. It cannot submit to the law of God. In fact, the flesh is hostile to God and his law. So what did God do? God did what his own righteous, powerful in one sense, and yet in another sense, powerless law could not do. This is really important. It's really important for you to see this. God did what his law could not do. His righteous law could not do this. He didn't destroy the law. He did not destroy the law. Notice how powerful the language is. What did he destroy? What did he obliterate? What did he condemn in the very real humanity of Jesus? What did he nuke? Sin in the flesh, the very flesh of Jesus. He obliterated it. He torched it. He raised it. He agent oranged it. He did not destroy the law. That's very significant. Because the law is not the problem. The problem is sinful flesh. And so Jesus comes to do two things. He comes to fulfill the demands of the law. And then he, as a substitute, takes the sin of his people to himself, his very real flesh, and he suffers condemnation for them. The law is not destroyed. Sin is obliterated, condemned, and destroyed. We've seen this before, actually, in the first verses of chapter 7. We've seen this same idea 
Notice in chapter 7, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4, that it isn't the law which is removed. It isn't the law which dies. You remember the law is likened to a husband, a husband who is brutal and who is oppressive. But it isn't the husband who dies, is it? Who dies? The bride dies. The wife dies. The one who's being oppressed, the one who can't get free, the one who can't be delivered. By this law. And then having died, what happens to this one who has died? This one who has died has been raised in Jesus Christ. In order that the one who has been raised in and by Jesus Christ through his resurrection power might be given to Jesus Christ. And who is Jesus Christ but the incarnation, the fulfillment of the law. The righteousness of the law is in Jesus. I I know there are a bunch of metaphors that are flying around and we're trying to connect these dots and piece this all together. Here's the point Paul is making. Again, something has happened to you if you are a Christian this morning. In one sense, it's a death and a resurrection. You've died to the law and then it's a marriage. You have been wed to Jesus Christ. And Paul tells us in verse 4 of chapter 7, My brothers, you have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. The fruit of righteousness. And here now, we're living in the Spirit. We're walking in the Spirit. It is the Spirit who is the one who has effected this union between us and Jesus. It is Jesus by His Spirit, by His mighty Spirit, who has brought people from death to life. In order that they, by His Spirit, might be united to Him. So that they might bear fruit of righteousness. That's what Paul is talking about here. When you read this verse in chapter 8, verse 4, and Paul says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit, there are two possible ways to understand that. The first is legal, forensic. It may be that Paul has that in mind. When we talk about the law being fulfilled in us legally or in a forensic sense, we're talking about this. We're talking about the fact that Jesus came to do what I can't do. He fulfilled all the law. He kept all the law. He is declared well-pleasing in the sight of the Father because every moment of every day he loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and all of his soul and all of his mind and all of his strength. And when I accept Jesus the very righteousness of Jesus comes with him. And I get it. And I'm clothed in it. That's why there's no condemnation for me. That's why there is no threat of judgment. It would be an injustice. Do you see this? It would be an injustice on the part of a just God to condemn a righteous person. There's no condemnation for you. Why? Because it's a package deal. You get Jesus, you get his righteousness. All of it. 
That's legal. That's forensic. That's the ground of your justification. That's the ground of your acceptance with the Father. I don't believe that's what Paul's talking about here. I don't believe he's talking about the legal and forensic thing. We're in transition, right? We've moved from justification and its initial fruits and this discussion of the law and what the law does. We've moved from that now into the sphere, the world of walking out the Christian life. That's the language that he uses. Right? Again, verse 4 of chapter 8. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who now walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Paul's beginning to talk about family likeness, if you will. He's beginning to talk about emerging, if you will. You see, the change isn't just a legal standing, a forensic thing in the presence of God. The change is a real, experiential, existential thing. It's not just freedom from condemnation. It's freedom from bondage. That's the power thing that we were talking about weeks ago. Free from the penalty, free from the power, and being freed more and more by the power of God's Spirit operative in me. That's the sense in which Paul is speaking about this law being fulfilled in us. How does it happen? This is what we get to talk more about next week and probably after vacation, my vacation. How does this happen? It happens By the Spirit of God continuing to work, continuing to work in your life and mine. Think again of the imagery of this unborn child with all of these influences that are shaping facial features, temperament, personality, this little Malone Webster thing that's growing in a womb. There are parental influences. There are grandparental influences. There are great-grandparental influences. There are great-great-grandparental influences shaping this child. You see what a Christian is? A Christian has been born again of the Spirit, united to Jesus Christ. And so what is it? What is it that we have every reason to expect of those about whom that is true. We have every reason to expect that the fruit of union with Jesus Christ, the fruit of the work of the Spirit in raising one from death to life, uniting that one to Jesus Christ, we have every reason to expect of those who dwell in the realm of the Spirit upon whom the Spirit is working, we have every reason to expect, every hope, That things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control will begin to be the features, the marks, the characteristics of those who are the brothers and sisters, the sons and daughters of the Father and the Son. Change. Change. That's what we have every reason to expect. The law can't change me. Go ahead. Make your rules. 
I understand rules. I understand they have a place. They do. They constrain. Nobody likes to get caught except sociopaths. They have their place. They can't change you. Rules can't change you. Your theology can't change you. Right? Ideas in your head, not enough. Experiences can't change you. Quiver in the liver, not enough. Be a moralist, be a brainiac, be an experientialist. What you need is to be changed by the Spirit of God. That's what I need. And that is what is happening. And that is what Paul's expectation is. The change will come. But here's the second word. Here's the second thing. And it is the word struggle. And I have to drop you down to verse 13. I have to drop you down to verse 13. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If by the Spirit, you see, by the Spirit, not by your rules, not by your theology, not by your experiences, all three are real parts of the Christian experience. But rules can't change me. Theology can't change me. Quiver in the liver can't change me. If by the Spirit, this is the thing we're going to have to plumb the depths of a little bit. If by the Spirit, listen to the language, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That sounds like something way deeper than just struggle to me. That sounds like homicide. And I don't mean to be cute here. That sounds like homicide. That sounds like murder. Put to death the deeds of the body. That sounds like, again, see, you get amens. I don't mean to be, I'm, I'm not being alarmist in this, and I don't mean to use alarmist language. This sounds like euthanasia. This sounds like mercy killing. Put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's struggle in this, friends. There's a battle in this. There is a fight for life in this. It is life that we are offered as opposed to death. We're going to look at this next week. There are three massively great motivations for heeding what Paul is saying here. Let me tell you what they are really quickly. Window into next week, and then you can come back. Three massively significant motivations. One positive, one negative, and one filial. Meaning relational. What's the negative motivation? Sin leads me to death. What's the positive motivation? Righteousness moves me in the direction of life and peace. What is the filial or relational motivation for this? My Father has given His prized possession, His Son, for my salvation. He gave my brother to die in my place. There's massive motivation for heeding what Paul is saying here. But my friends, this is a fight. It is a battle. It is a struggle. And let's be clear about two things. When we think about what Paul's talking about, as he talks about deeds of the body, 
let's let's not go. Let's just not go where we naturally want to go. And that is to the ugly and nasty and really impolite stuff that people do. Let's not just go there. Let's go back to Romans 1. And listen to Paul's catalog of things that fall under this general heading of deeds of the body. Filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness. You can't see covetousness most of the time. Malice. Most of the time you can't see malice. Why? Because people become very practiced It's a great line from an old Rolling Stones song. They become very practiced at the art of deception, self-deception and deceiving others. You can't see a lot of this stuff. It doesn't look like some of these other things. Listen to this. Envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Kids, disobedient to parents. It gets lumped in there. These are the things that are the deeds of the body, which Paul says we are summoned by him. We are being called by him, by the Spirit, to exterminate these things, to euthanize these things, to kill, murder, maim, cripple, destroy these things. Why? Because they rob God of glory, me of life. I've been reading in the law these last several weeks. I made a comment about this last Sunday night. I'm behind, and I had to blow through numbers. And I got into Deuteronomy, and I'm in Deuteronomy now, the second reading of the law. Actually, I just finished it this last week, and I saw something in the first chapter that I swear to you was not in my Bible before this reading. Deuteronomy chapter 1. This is Moses reminding the people of God of their history, of what went on some 40 years prior to where they are now, right on the edge of the land, ready to go into the land. And he reminds them that God led them from through Passover and Exodus and across the Red Sea and through the wilderness, led them from Egypt, led them right to the threshold of occupying the land. And the spies went into the land and they took a peek around and they came back and two of them said, it is a good and glorious land. It is a beautiful land and God will enable us to take it. And democracy took over and 10 said, bad idea, big cities, tall people, Fortified walls, we can't do it. And God said to that generation, okay, you don't want to go? Go back into the wilderness and stay there until this whole generation of military people is gone. And I'll bring you back and we'll do it on the second go-around. Now here's what I never noticed. I never noticed that after God said to the people, that they would not go into the land, and after God sent them back out into the wilderness, they tried to go into the land on their own. They tried to go into the land on their own. 
Deuteronomy 1 verse 41. Then you answered me, we have sinned against the Lord. We ourselves will go up and fight just as the Lord our God commanded us. And every one of you fastened on his weapons of war, your rules, your theology, your experiences. Every one of us fastened on our weapons of war and thought it easy to go up into the hill country. They thought it easy. And the Lord said to me, say to them, do not go up and fight, for I am not in your midst, lest you be defeated before your enemies. So I spoke to you, but you would not listen. You rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the hill country. And then the Amorites who lived in that hill country came out against you and chased you as bees do and beat you down in Seir as far as Hormah. And you returned and wept to the Lord. My friends, my brothers and sisters, I'm preaching to myself here. What I need to understand What you need to understand, what we need to understand as we read the history of Israel is that the story of Israel is your story. It is your story. Don't read this as history in this and that. Read it as history. I don't want to get in trouble for saying that. It's history. But it's teaching you something about yourself. You needed a Passover. You needed an Exodus. And before you can occupy the promised land, The idolatries in that land need to be decimated. And what you need to understand, what I need to understand, is that my heart is the land the God of heaven and earth seeks to occupy. And before he occupies that land, he must decimate the idolatries that are there. And you can't do that. He alone, by the mighty operation of his spirit, is the only one who can do that. The plea, the cry, the prayer of every Christian is do what you alone can do. Kill the idols, destroy them, maim them, crush them, cripple them by the mighty working of your spirit. In the midst of that, again, I wish I had another hour, but that's what next week is for. In the midst of that, Hear these two final words. As you reflect upon what the expectation is, that we might be made like Jesus, that we might be formed and shaped by his spirit according to righteousness. As we think about this struggle and the business of euthanizing, decimating, the idolatries in the land which is our hearts. Keep these two verses in your minds. Write them down. Put them on the forefront of your brains. Philippians 1.6 He 
who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. He will do it. And Philippians 2.13, it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. As you find yourself in this struggle and in this fight, don't lose sight of this promise that God will finish in you what he started. Let's pray together. And I do encourage you to be here next week so we can think more about these things. And if you want to come out tonight, we've got an agenda for tonight. But if you want to talk about some of this stuff tonight, we'll talk about it tonight. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the architect You are the sculptor, you are the builder, the framer, the maker. And we trust you that in grace and mercy, by your power, you will continue this wonderful, liberating, hopeful, freeing work of making us after your own beautiful image. Give us grace to submit to your work in our lives for the praise of your glorious grace. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Stand together and sing, number 165, ye servants of God.